We're in a series on names. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm working through stuff and I'm choosing joy because there's this incredible God that we serve, right? So I, do, I want you to just relax and, and enjoy this incredibly good God you, that you know. Uh, we've looked at names and, and the name that we're looking at today is Jacob. So I want you to think for a second, what comes to mind when you hear the word Jacob? What, what may be a word, one word, that marks his life. We've been looking at words that mark like Abraham and Sarah. Started out by just talking about what's so important about your name. What's the one word that comes to mind? Wow. Okay. And tell someone next to you, not me. Okay. Just turn to someone and just tell them that one word, would you? Be bold. It's just one word. Okay. Now you should be on to the next word, the next person. Okay. Don't need to explain it. Great. Okay. Thanks. I love what you said. Someone might even think of ladder, twin, deceiver, wrestled, or wrestler. Maybe you thought of the bratty little kid in grade school. You know, they could, who knows where you went with that thought. But although we looked at words that had marked the lives of Abraham and Sarah, to, today we're going to just look at one word that marked the life. And it's, it's a word that I'm choosing that you might have your own, but it is the one, in my mind, is the top word for Jacob. It's the word blessed. How many thought that word? Good. So let me explain why blessed is so important. Because more than anything else, if you look at his life, this very dirty, rotten, scoundrel, deceiver, Jacob wanted to be blessed. He bargained with his brother for it. He tricked his father with his mother's help to get it. He actually ran from home and had this dream of a ladder, fearing that he would lose it. And he wrestled all night with what scripture says, with the man holding on to him in the midst of incredible injury and pain, saying, I will not let go till you what? So we're looking at the word blessed. We looked at Abraham and we saw that when his name was changed for Abram to Abraham, he be, he was known as the father of many nations. And faith being one of those that mark him. Sarah. Changed from Sarai to Sarah. That H, which is the idea of the creative Holy Spirit in Genesis 1. The princess of many people. And it's on some other of faith. Well, what's interesting, you have Isaac. You don't have a whole lot said about Isaac. So we just jumped over him and came to Jacob. Because you don't have the changing of the name in the same way. And when you come to Jacob, it's very interesting when you look at his life. Because Jacob, later on in his life, is named Israel. And and though he is not the father of many nations, he is specifically, distinctly by his name, the father of one very important name. Jacob, now his name, Israel. And all who would come from him would be the many people of Israel. And so, as we look at this, the thing that's so important in this is one of the reasons his name is even mentioned to be Israel is because it was in Israel that the the power of God was made known and flowed through him so that he could bless a specific people. And they would be people who would be marked by the blessing of God. Does that all translate I hope you're following me. People sometimes say I go a little too fast and then I get going and I never been to stop. Um, so I just want to share with you, we're not going to look at marks of a person's name through some words. We're going to look at one word blessing and I'm going to ask you a series of questions. 
And the very first one is, do you really want God's blessing? Do you really want God's blessing? I've had a couple opportunities in the last couple days where I reacted rather than responded and allowed for God to work through me and to bless and to be in relationship deeply with him and other people and, and messed that up. And, and I've had to ask myself, do I really want God's blessing? Do I want his favor to flow into my life so that I'll be connected to him and connected to others? Because think about it, when you come to the end of your life, you're, no one's sitting around going, I wish I worked more hours. I wish I had more cabins. You're kind of going, it's all about relationship. Gary Player, who is considered to be one of golf's greatest champions, was very eloquent and well-spoken. He was a man respected for his wisdom um, on issues pertaining to golf and life. He had a very difficult childhood and, and was shaped very much by that. He won nine major championships and 156 other worldwide victories between 1955 and 2010. So there was a longevity about his golf career. And when he spoke, golfers listened. How many golfers do I have here? Okay, so you may know some of these quotes. He said things like, if there's a golf course in heaven, I hope it's like Augusta National. And then he added, I just don't want an early tea time. (laughs) He didn't want to go to heaven too soon for anyone who's struggling with that one. Okay. He also said, golf is a puzzle without an answer. I've played many, uh, I've played the game of golf for 40 years and I still haven't the slightest idea of how to play it. Which gives me incredible great hope. And for all of us who play golf, I mean, if the expert doesn't get it, why should you think you should? He said, we create success or failure on the course primarily by our thoughts. To play well, you need to think well. He said, mediocre thoughts leads to mediocre golf. And when asked how he could be so lucky, he would often respond, the harder you train, the luckier you get. He was an interesting guy. He was approached again and again, and people would say to him, I'd give anything if I could hit a ball like you. And he would just kind of smile and not say much. Till one particular grueling day on the course, after not doing as well as he would like, someone again, as he was walking by, made the comment and said, Gary, I would love to hit the ball like you and to play like you. And he kind of quickly corrected the man and did so rather tersely, looking at the guy. No, you wouldn't. You'd give anything to hit the ball like me if it were easy. And you know how that is with reporters. It was just dead silence. That uncomfortable silence when someone speaks something out of a little bit of anger. And then he responded, turned and kind of said, If you want to play like me, you've got to get up early in the morning at like 5 a.m., go out, hit a 1,000 golf balls, walk back up to the clubhouse, put a bandage on your hand where it's bleeding, and then go back out and hit another 1,000 balls. That's what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. And the uncomfortable silence was just even a little more uncomfortable. I think Jacob was that kind of guy. Probably asked maybe later in his life... Man, I'd like the blessing like you have, Jacob. I, I would love it if God turned his favor on me. And then he actually named me a name that, that, it, that talked about the fact that this is a people from now on who will be like Jacob, who will be blessed by God. Well, I would like that. And I think Jacob would probably stop. Oh, 
You know what you got to do? There's a whole lot of things you got to do. You got to come to grips with your stuff inside. You got to start working. You got to, you know what I think he would, he would probably say? He would probably turn to you and say, how badly do you want God's favor and blessings? Be honest with yourself. And we talk about that as a church. How badly do we want God's favor and blessing? Imagine a church that takes, that does whatever it takes is a tall order. How badly do you want God's favor on the rest of your life? On your family? Your work? How badly do you want God's favor on you wherever you set your foot and whatever you touch? That's the first question I want you to wrestle with. Because the rest is kind of like, well, if you really, really don't want it, then... And I'm not saying anyone's perfect in it, but you just got to ask yourself, is this something I want? Do I want God? Do I want to know him? Do I want to be deeply connected to God and deeply connected to other people that through that relationship, God will begin to use me as, as, as much as I am a failure and as much as I don't do things right and as much as I am I willing to say, God, I recognize this and I want you to bless others through me because I want to be blessed by you. Which isn't about gathering all kinds of goods and, you know, getting a big financial portfolio or it's not about, you know, having the perfect family. It's not about stuff like that. It's about living in the grace and goodness of God and beginning to recognize your own sin and saying, God, I just want to be cleaned up so I can be the clearest and most pure vessel. I can translate the kingdom of God and what it means to live in that. And allow his love to flow through me in sacrificial ways and in ways where I go, I'm going to actually do things. I'm going to train. I'm going to exercise. I'm, I'm going to go to my hands that are bloody in that sense of, of getting up in the morning and spending a, a few moments in God's word and, and, and making sure I'm in community with other people in a, in a group where I'm being honest with my life. And I'm going I'm to do some of the things that will, will release blessing in my life. That's the first question. Which has all kinds of implications. You need to be asking yourself, do I, do I really want to know God's word? Or is it just something I say? Do I really want to be in community? Do I, do I want to spend and take some time and carve out time where I will meet with some people who are, who are seeking God's blessing in the same way? Am I, am I willing to say, God, I'm going to serve in some areas where it's not about me, but it's really about just letting you touch other people? There's a second question I'm going to ask you to think about, and that is this. Are you aware? Here's the, here's the second, like, very important question. Are you aware of what is keeping you from God's favor and blessing? Have you ever stopped to just say, okay, I really, I really want to understand what might could be, what could be blocking God's blessing? I mean, I've already talked about that. You may, it may be the desire and some of the habits and some of the training and things that you need to do there. But there's other things, too, that get in the way. Is there an ability in your life that you're trusting in that is preventing God's ability from flowing through you? That's another way to look at it. Could your own perceived strength be getting in the way of God's actual strength flowing through you? Could your own need and self-love and whatever it is you do to protect yourself through your reactions get in the way of God being able to respond through you? 
So let's look at the story of Jacob. It's kind of a tale of twins, and the first is the twins are born. So we're going to kind of walk through the story of Jacob, and hopefully we'll be able to get this done soon. Anyway, um, Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 21. The twins are born. That's how the story begins. And this is the words. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he, remar- when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, which you need to know that area is the area um, of Haran, where Abraham stopped and they settled there. Remember that? Okay. Um, the, and, he, and he's a sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. There's kind of a theme going on here of barrenness, right? And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. I just recently had one of our nephews who had called us, and they said, guess what? And we thought, okay, it's probably pregnancy, right? Well, we were right. And the next word shocked us. We've got twins. And I go, whoa. So anyway, twins. And we were just with them and asked them, what is that like and all that stuff. Well, we have a number of people who have twins here, so we celebrate that. It's in the water, so be careful. Um, the first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. And after this, his brother came out, and his hand was grasping Esau's heel, and so he was named Jacob, which means he grasped the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for means he deceives. Isn't that interesting? He grasped the heel. He deceives. Isaac was six years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. And they grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay, in a sense, at home, in the farm fields, in the tents. And, and, and Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, it says, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There is the beginning of some real trouble at home. I don't want to comment much more on that, but I can tell you when kids feel favoritism, watch out. I've seen it directly impact the lives of some who have had that. See, Esau was older by a fraction of a second and was first in his daddy's heart by miles. He was the athlete, the outdoorsman, the, the, the hunter, the one who fished, who played varsity since eighth grade. He's that kind of guy. He was a stud. Okay? And Jacob was a mama's boy. He kind of hung out in the kitchen, was a great chef, was smart as a whip, really sharp. And the household was no doubt filled with tension. So as a result of that, here's the next part of the story. After they're born and they're kind of growing up with this kind of environment, the twins separate. Esau comes in starving from a hunting trip one day. He's just famished, and, and really he's the kind of guy that his stomach went ahead of anything he thought. And so he's famished, and Jacob was in the kitchen. He was cooking this incredible stew, this red stew. And Esau says, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And and Jacob goes, no problem. That's not a problem. But you know what? I got a deal. First, sell me your birthright. Basically, give me the primogeniture rights, which have been a part of society all the way up to about the 1800s, where that was the way you kept culture and society working well, is you had the firstborn who would get everything. You didn't divide it all out because often you didn't have enough to divide out so that people could really make it. So you gave to the firstborn 
the one who is supposed to be responsible, who would take care of it, and he'd continue to build it, and they would live within that corporate structure, so to speak. And so he says, give me that. I would really like that, and I'd like to be blessed by God. And Esau says, take it. I'm about to die of hunger. What good is the blessing of a birthright when I'm starving to death? And so he swore by an oath and sold the birthright to Jacob. And it's amazing how little we trade for God's blessing. You do it all the time. I do it. I I just jump into this and I let go of God's blessing. Stew for a promotion, a few thousand dollars. The approval of people. The addiction to medicate our pain rather than go through the pain. And on and on and on. And the story of their birthright ends with these words. Genesis chapter 25 verse 34. So Esau despised his birthright. Didn't really care about his place. Didn't really care about God's blessing. He just despised that. So then later when Esau, when Isaac, an old man, practically blind, nearing death, was ready to give the blessing of God the birthright... Even though it was tricked out of Jacob with his mom's help dressed up in hairy fur and the smell of the wild. And so his dad's in there half blind, not being able to tell who's coming in. And he's going to give this blessing away. And here's the big trick that takes place. First, he buys it and sells it and gets that from Esau. And now he needs to get it from his father. He tricks his father. And his dad blesses him. Thinking it's Esau. Esau finds out. He's enraged. And what do you think you want to do when you find out that someone has not only said they bought it, but they tricked you? In fact, I think that's what's going on along. Yeah, yeah, I'll sell it to you, I'll sell it to you, but I will get it when dad blesses me. And now he's tricked out of it. He wants to kill Jacob. Listen to Genesis 28, verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I'll just wait till my dad's dead. And then all you know what will break loose. Again, Jacob, and again with his mom's help, gets word, runs for his life. His mother instructs him to run up to Haran where his uncle Laban lives, because she knew that he could go back to the rallies, and the rallies are living there, settled in Haran, which, remember, was parched land, a place with not great blessing, and he runs back there, he goes back there. He's on the outskirts of Babylon, and he's living there. But on the way, on the place, as he's leaving, he stops at a place called Bethel, which means house of God, and he stops there and sleeps. He puts his head on a rock. He has this experience, and you kind of go, what's going on here? He feared the fact that when you would leave the land where the God lived and go to another place where there are other gods, he would no longer be cared for by this God. And so what you have is God, as he's running away, comes to him and says, I'm here to still bless you, gives him an open heaven, angels descending and descending. He says, you know what? I'm still willing to bless you. You may be kind of running away from God. You may have been in his place and he's kind of going, you know what? I am still waiting to bless you. If you're willing to deal with what's blocking the blessing. And God assures him not only is he with him, but there's this open heaven available of blessing to him.
One of my favorite stories is in the Rolling Stone magazine, and I used to read this because I wanted just to stay in touch with culture. Um, And I read this great story about Bono a number of years ago in the Rolling Stone magazine. This was a while ago. And Bono, the lead singer of U2, had done so much to help care for the hungry, started this group one. And and in Africa and around the world, he was making a difference. And, And the editors and writers of the article of Rolling Stone were not really happy with him. In fact, they were kind of angry with Bono because he had recently struck up a relationship with their enemy, George Bush, and and when he was actually president of the U.S. And, and, and they said, why don't you ignore him or blast him for his ineffectiveness as a leader? I love Bono. He astutely said, I don't have to agree with the leaders I work with. In fact, I have my differences with all of them. But the need of the world hunger and the poverty is much greater than what I like or don't like. I will work with anyone who will help resolve this need. That, I think, is profound. But he continued as he asked the questions to Bono about his drive to solve the world hunger problem. They didn't understand it. Why are you so driven to do this? They asked him why he thinks he feels almost called by God. In Rolling Stone magazine, almost called by God to do this. And he said, here's Bono's answer. Well, there's this story of Jacob in the Bible, as you may not realize, but Bono reads the Bible daily. There's this story of Jacob in the Bible, and the blessing was to go to his brother Esau, but Esau really didn't care that much about having it, so he sold it to his brother Jacob. Now, on the other hand, Bono says, Jacob really wanted it. He was willing to do anything to get it. And I sort of feel like Jacob. I have merely raised my hand like crazy before God and said, can you help with this, would you, if I was to do what you were in, would you bless that? <laughs> and God, like to Jacob, has said, This is what he says, okay, Bono, I see that hand. Isn't that powerful? God is merely looking for hands of people who are saying, Would you, would you bless me? God is looking for people like you and me that say, I, I, I want to help you write your story, God, to these different needs and situations. So Jacob finally gets to Haran. He works with Laban, sees his younger daughter, Rachel, and falls madly in love and asks Laban for his daughter's hand in marriage, which he probably should have been specific. I don't know. Laban says, sure. Give me seven years of hard labor and you can have my daughter. And I love these stories. They're beautifully written. If you just take time to read through them, listen to Jacob's response. And and some women, you might just swoon with this. Um, Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Seven years, not a problem. Feels like a day. So in love. Now Laban knows that, first of all, you can't marry your younger before, you know, the older. So... He does this tricky thing, ends up so that, and it's too long a story to go into, just trust me, Jacob's tricked. Isn't it interesting, Jacob is deceived and tricked by his uncle Laban. You kind of go, maybe sins do get a generation, maybe they are somewhat in a family. And also this, isn't it interesting what you might have as a pattern seems to hit back to you. Be generous, and you'll find people generous. Be kind, you'll find people treat you kindly. Be angry, manipulative, or cheat. And guess what? I bet you others will respond in a similar manner. So Jacob works another seven years, and now he gets Rachel. He's worked there 14 years. 
And he goes through this process where he's taking care of the sheep. Again, another huge, long story, but the ultimate end is that Jacob ends up getting all the strong animals and Laban gets all the weak by some genetic wise thinking. Remember I said he's really smart? And Jacob um, does this. And here's what he does. Jacob developed a pattern of manipulation, scheming, and deceiving, and running. And he does all this and once again knows as he's tricked his uncle, he's got to run again. He deceives his uncle and runs. Laban is furious. Remember like Esau was furious. And Genesis 31, 21-21 ends with these words. Jacob deceived Laban, so he fled with all he had crossing the river and he headed for the country of Gilead. Basically, he headed home. Now the story moves from the twins being separated to the twins are going to reunite. And think about it. They're going to reunite. There's probably a few things on Jacob's mind. Listen to Genesis chapter 32, 1 through 8. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. They meet him again as he's entering back into the land. So Jacob saw them and he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. I'm not going to go into this. Okay. And then Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructed them, this is what you were to say to my Lord Esau. Your servants, Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats and male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord. He's calling him, you know, you're, you're the leader, buddy, that I may find favor in your eyes. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and he is now coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. The next words are telling, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. So when he came to the camp, here is the group of God and the group of Jacob and all his. Now he's dividing these into two groups. There's all kinds of really neat things in the Hebrew. I won't go into all that. And in great fear, he, he goes ahead and he divides them. And he thought, if Esau comes to attack one group, the group that is left may escape. So in great fear, he divides his family into two groups. And once again, he's scheming because he's preparing to run. Deceive and dash off is his plan. It's his well-practiced strategy throughout his life. What's blocking God's blessing from your life? What are the things you've learned from childhood that you keep just pulling back to? Because it's the way you've learned to get what you want. But it's the very thing after a while that gets to be the thing that was your survival pattern has now become what I call your pattern of imprisonment that breaks you off from God and other people. You may get something short term for yourself, but everyone else is robbed. So we don't have time to read all this, but Jacob concocts this elaborate plan first to appease his brother through gifts, wave upon waves of gifts. He sends out, if you notice it, what's most valuable first. The first group he sends out are livestock with servants. And here's what he instructs them. Go ahead of me and keep some space between between the herds. So I want just kind of a wave to go. And if he's happy, maybe he won't do anything. And we just have waves of these kind of gifts that are coming with the idea that eventually maybe he'll be overwhelmed. In fact, he says he's hoping I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending ahead. Perhaps he will receive me. He's scared. So then he sends Leah and, and his family next. Remember, it's most valuable all the way down. He's going from what's least valuable to most valuable. And then he sends across the river Rachel, his one he worked seven years for the felt like a day in family. And guess who stays behind? 
Guess who's the last one to go? Look who's getting protected the most. So once again, I ask, what's the strategy you've learned so well to take care of yourself? What might hinder God from releasing his power through you? What schemes have you learned to get the blessing of love or approval or a sense of security or a sense of feeling valued? What do you do to keep things at peace, maybe, so that you don't show up with what you need to? We have all kinds of ways we do this. I'm going to move on to the next question. Are you willing to wrestle with God till he removes what keeps you from his fullest blessing? Let me say it. Are you willing to stay in contact and connection with God? Will you hold on to him even when you fail, even when you're scheming? All these, will you hold on to him so much so that you will not let him go till you say, God, I am so hungry for your blessing. Even though I mess it up, even though I get in the way, I'm going to continue to just grab hold of you. I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. Are you willing to let him put to death the flesh? Those natural strategies for living that you learn to help you get what you need. You could even have had an encounter, many of you, with God in your life and still hold on to that deep strategy. Jacob wrestled with the man not willing to let go until the man delivered a, a defining blow. Listen to these words in Genesis 22, 32, 23 through 29. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent them over with all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, and this is so interesting things in the story, don't have enough to talk about it at this time. It, listen, though, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. That's really an important thing right here. And then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what's your name? The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob says, let me, tell me your name. And here's the thought that struck me as I was preparing this message even a few weeks back. To answer our prayer to be blessed, God must touch that which keeps us from blessing. To answer our prayer that we may have to be blessed, God must sometimes touch what keeps us from his blessing. Actually wound us. God may have to touch you in the very area of your own strength and wisdom so that you begin to rely on it no longer, but begin to rely on his wisdom and strength. He may have to break you from your self-dependency that you will become dependent upon him. The man touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. Jacob, listen to this, the deceiver and runner now had a limp. Jacob could no longer run. His greatest strategy, deceive and run. Jacob had to face Esau with only God. And he could, Jacob could not rely on his childhood strategy. And we all learn these strategies to survive, to get what we think we need. And sometimes God wounds us so that we'll become fully dependent on him. I was wounded terribly at a time in my ministry a number of years ago. 
He literally broke me. I was in a place in a ministry in a church where I had a dream for it, and I thought it was going to move in this direction. And, and one day the dream just evaporated, and I saw that it wasn't, and it was just so clear to me. And honestly, I left it. I was so brokenhearted because I thought this was a dream that was not just mine but was God's. And I was suicidal. I, I can tell you I left. I felt like I'd lost everything. And I, I realized now why I was somewhat suicidal. Because what, what I had been learned, had learned in my life and was the very thing that, that made me successful in what I did was, was God was actually touching it and, and breaking it and, and showing me that it wasn't successful. And, 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 and it felt like something so core in me was dying. And it was. I remember I called my wife. I'm in the car. I'm just wasted. And, and, and my, my wife says, would you just go see, I've been seeing some therapist who was, he was a Christian man, but he was not a Bible thumper. He didn't kind of like go to every problem. Here's what the Bible says. He just really listened and understood. And, and this time though, I came in and he didn't always, in, in fact, he did this very rarely. I came in, I was completely crushed. I decided to do what my wife had suggested. And he opened up Psalm 88 and here's what he, here's what he read. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. You have, this is the line that just kind of crippled me. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. I was really angry at God. And I read those lines over and over again. And I wrestled and I wrestled and I held on to God because I didn't understand it. And I read those lines. You have put me in the low spirit. God, you injured me. And I began to realize he was injuring something so deep in me that was keeping me from receiving his fullest blessing because I was relying still on my own self. And it was on that day that I, I began to understand the words that are in Uh, Jesus said to his disciples just before his death, he said in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, and it just so resonated in my heart when I was reading these, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you kind of go, in his death? When God's going to bruise him for the sin of all us? That's the time of glory? That's the lifting up? Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The dying and crushing experience, if you have experienced it, is exceedingly painful. The kernel of our flesh that releases the life of the spirit. And I'm telling you, you can have an encounter with God and be searing him with all your heart, but all of a sudden, if there comes a point and you say, I want God, I want your blessing more than anything else. And you really mean it. And then you come to this place and you go, God, would you just help me be aware of what's blocking that? I'll do it. And then he comes along and he goes, you really mean that? Then if you're willing, I will touch you and I will hurt your hip. I will take the very thing that you deceive and run away on and you will begin to face me in, in life. And all your fears, your greatest fears you will face with God as your strength. Do you want that?
So during that time, forever after, those words of Jesus have been so rich in my heart, and I believe that's what was happening in his. And so the man asked him, what's your name? And Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will longer be Jacob but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and overcome. You know, the word Jacob meant deceiver. The word Israel, um, the way it says it there, it's really the idea that you have held on to God so that he could, in a sense, put to death what's keeping his power from flowing through you. And you will be a people from now on where the power of God will flow through broken, small, weak vessels. And God wanted to make it clear that it was he who gave Israel power, position, and blessing, not conniving, fleshly, self-reliant scheming. It's not by what we can do, even here as a church community, that's going to win anybody's heart in this world. It's going to be because they see the brokenness and God's love flowing through us, being translated into their lives in ways that make sense. And in response, Genesis chapter 32, 29, Jacob asked the man's name. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. It's kind of like, you don't need to know my name. In fact, God's name, because it was God, it was Christ in flesh. Kind of, he, his name is so big, there is not, uh, there's a billion names for it and more. Sometimes he reveals his name in a specific way. This time he chose not to. So let me ask you the last question, and I know we're over, but I'm just going to ask it to you, and I'll make it quick. Are you willing to recognize your wound as a mark of God's grace? Your wound is a mark of God's grace, designed not merely as a path of God's personal blessing and favor for you, but as a route of God's blessing and favor to others. It actually points other people to God. Listen to Genesis 32, 30, and 32. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying it is because I saw the face of God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And then, I love these words, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Here's this guy. The imagery of scripture is so cool. The sun, that's, it's not by, by chance that he writes this. The sun is flowing. He's a man under God's blessing, limping. Going to face his greatest fear, and he could care less that his greatest fear was there because he had the greatest thing in his life, the approval and love and the blessing and the goodness of God. It didn't matter about himself. He didn't care what would happen there. He trusted himself fully that God would do what needed to be done. And here he goes. The sun rose above him, and as he passed Benil, he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And you go, What? Because it's become sacred now. This little part of the hip was sacred. And they would always remember this wound. Because it was through the wound, the brokenness, that the blessing comes. And you know what that's like. Some of you have experienced a divorce, a bankruptcy. You've experienced kids that haven't responded in the way that you had prayed and hoped. You've been in places where you do your own addiction. You've caused, and God has grabbed hold of you in your brokenness. And he loves you. And he says, through that is my power. And here's what's so cool about it. He says, this wound will become sacred to all who see it. This wound of a nail in the, in the hand and in the spear in the side and on a cross becomes what? Sacred to all see it. Because in this wounding on the cross comes all of our blessing. Blessing. 
here's what's so cool is you walk with God. You just God, I really want your blessing. And God, I, I, I'm willing for you to do whatever you need to do. If you need to touch that area that keeps that blessing from coming, I want you to do it even though it's painful. And then God does it. It's that very area that your brokenness is where his blessing flows. And then for the rest of your life, you use that brokenness. You tell the story like I did of a time where I just lost it all. I was suicidal. I knew. And God said, I broke the flesh in order that my life of the spirit could be through you. I'm, I'm, I know I'm worked up about this, guys. Um, and I know I'm over time. I'm asked a team to come. But our wounds, our brokenness is to be meant to be in community. And in community, you tell your story. And in that community, people get life. And in that life, they spread life. We are all about this. This is what we're called to do. I just look at every one of you and I ask you to say, God, I want you to use me. I want my brokenness to be what allows your blessing to flow into my family, into my wife, my kids, into the places I work. God, we are serious about what we prayed for. We want you to revive us. Everybody in for that? Then stand up. Let's stand up together and just sing this last song. At least I got a few claps. (laughs) And it wasn't for me. I mean, you're into it. You want this.